Hello there. Welcome to Positive Changes, a self-kick podcast. I'm your host, Shelley F. Knight. I'm a former nurse and clinical hypnotherapist, term podcaster and author of Positive Changes, a self-kick book and Good Grief, the A to Z approach of modern day grief healing. In each episode, I aim to share my clinical, spiritual, and personal experience to help you feel inspired to create your own positive changes in life. Fear not, it's not just me. Each week, I will bring on a new guest and they will share their authentic story of positive change and the tools that they used on their journey. So if you're ready to be inspired, let's go. Today, despite having quite a heavy subject as we talk about postnatal depression and our infertility, there's love and laughter in the episode where I'm joined by the wonderful Susie Bashford. Actually, when you're thinking of killing yourself, whether it's like, oh, shall I get up today or shall I hang myself? That's quite a stark question. So everything else is filtered out. And things like, you know, that I usually might worry about, like money, they don't even get on your radar because what is the point in money? when you're having that question. And what's the point in a flaky friend who sometimes talks to you and sometimes doesn't? I mean, she is just not on your either. So everything is sharpened into focus. And I think, for me, what I am pleased that I've been able to do is make changes and then consciously hold on to a lot of them. I mean, it's a constant practice, as it probably is with you, but constantly remembering what you've learned and, and living that and you know, reminding yourself of what's important. It's not just for those women in your life. It's about everyone just trying to live their best life, asking for help before it's too late. So if you're ready, come and meet Susie with me. show I am joined by the wonderful Susie Bashford who's a journalist, workshop facilitator, speaker and podcast host of The Big Juicy Creative. So hello there Susie. Hello thank you for having me. Bless you thank you for coming. (laughs) Well to be honest there's not a huge amount in the diary at the moment so not that that's to put this down but um, yeah it's nice to have something to do on a Saturday night. Yay wild times here we go. Bless you, you've got quite a story, which sounds like it's gone over many, many years, but I think mm-hmm. so many of our listeners, like the mums out there are going to relate to it. So please do share what's been happening in Susie's world. Mm. Where do you want me to start? So let's talk pregnancy. Okay. So pregnancy, I I was one of the, my first friends, even though I was kind of 30, to get pregnant. And I had this really idyllic idea of it, that I would bloom and look gorgeous and my skin would look glowing and all these things. But no, alas, that did not happen to me. I'd suffered from anxiety and depression in the past. But literally, as soon as I got pregnant, I didn't even need to do the test because I just felt different. I basically felt horrendous straight away. The anxiety hit, everything hit. 
And straight away, I went into quite a dark place very quickly, which was made all the more difficult because we have this whole narrative in society. It's getting a bit better, but certainly 12 years ago when I was pregnant, 13 years ago when I was pregnant, um, there was very much this idea that when you're pregnant, you're blooming and aren't you lucky and isn't this amazing? And I'm not saying, obviously, I understand how lucky I am. I know your story with fertility and I'm not downplaying that at all. But what I'm saying is that pregnancy is often not easy for a lot of people and it certainly wasn't for me. So it was pretty difficult to get through. And then when I got through, I just kept thinking about the end. The end to me was like nine, nine months. I can do it. I can do it. And then, of course, you do it. You have a baby and then you have a baby. <laughs> no one really talks about how difficult that bit is. So um, I had quite a lot of unaddressed baggage, but then I also had a baby and I also had the societal narrative in my head of, oh, I now got to be the perfect mum who purees everything and, and does this and does that and goes to NCT meetings and the pressure, the pressure, the pressure, the pressure built, built, built. Uh, husband obviously went back to work after two weeks and I was on my own and I basically broke and I ended up um, in a mother and baby unit uh, when my eldest son was about 10 weeks, I think. It's all quite a blur, but I think he was about 10 weeks. And I was hospitalized for about three months in the end. Bless so that you. was the whistle-stop whistle tour of my pregnancy <laughs> and birth. And Bless I won't you. even go into the birth that was really horrendous. I don't want to put listeners off, so let's just gloss <laughs> over that one. Bless you. I think so. People can be nodding going like, yes, Susie, because as you say, like <laughs> I've had like infertility journey. And so when I am pregnant, you don't want to say, God, oh, my God, it's awful. But with our first child, I had hyperemesis gravidarum, which is a rare <gasps> vomiting disorder. Oh, gosh, yes. I've heard about that. That sounds Yeah. Strange. And it affects like one percent of people. And I, you know, and I don't oh, say you're lucky one. I know. And I think that. I don't want a prize for it. But why <laughs> there used to be you know, those mums that used to go, oh, ladies at lunch, grab the pashmina, I'd just be grabbing the toilet bowl, do you know what I mean? And yeah. I didn't really need to go to lunch because nothing would stay down. And yeah, it is hard because people just say like, yeah, everyone gets you know, like morning sickness. And you're like, yeah, but they don't get it from week six up to like vomiting in labour, do they? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It is that I think societal. it's such an individual experience. And I think one thing, if there are listeners who are either you know, not mums yet and thinking about it or they are mums and going through it, I just say, you know, everyone's experience is different and you are quite entitled to whatever you're feeling and whatever your experience is. Because obviously some of my friends did bloom and it was amazing for them, but we should have all the different narratives and make sure that everyone is able to tell the story that they had without any shame, because I think there was a lot of shame with me at how imperfect I felt and this pressure to be someone that I clearly was never ever going to be I mean I am not the kind of mum that should even try and puree everything <laughs> <laughs> Kath, Kath Kidson I am not and I should have just owned that earlier as I have done now unfortunately Toby's now 12 so it's a bit late <laughs> but I'm kind of owning other parts of motherhood and I would say that to people listening is that we all have different strengths and weaknesses and if only I'd harnessed mine earlier because I do have my particular strengths as a mum and now I'm 
much more embracing of them and not beating myself up so much about the bits that I'm not good at and that has been the real change for me yeah I was kind of laughing at the puree thing because like when we had the first one as you say there's a healing process even when you have the baby you're then sort of like still feeling really really ill and you think oh my god what's happened to my body and things like that and your you're trying hormones to be normal. are all over the place yeah and... you're trying to be sexy but you know your belly looks like it's well you're doing exploded. well if you were trying to be sexy at that point <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fallen well off my radar <laughs> but you remember you just try and do things and I remember like boiling up all the vegetables the parsnips the carrots the peas the broccoli yeah and like you know the first child was jar fed happy kid bit colicky but happy and by the second one you think oh namaste mirth you know earth mother i'm gonna do this and you do it and i did feel really good like you know i was being that kind of mum they hated it and even now my kids are six <laughs> eight ten and fourteen they still hate my cooking yeah. they don't eat out of jars now but they do mostly <laughs> out the freezer with vegetables. And it's just with like- With vegetables though, you're winning with vegetables. Yay! Forming the dream team one meal at a time. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, you can, it's not just even the baby stage. People are always judging you, aren't you? Or you're always like judging yourself against someone else. And I think it's only because of my horrific last pregnancy that I got to a point where I thought, I don't really care what anyone else thinks. Do you know what I mean? My kids are still alive. They're not dead. They haven't got allergies or anything like that. Just keep doing what you're doing. And it's actually really liberating when you get to that point. Yeah. And I think um, that was one of the positives that happened with having such a um, <laughs> spectacular breakdown is that you get to that point where you're just like, well, I'm right at the bottom now. Only way is up. So, you know, you, it is quite liberating. You stop caring so much what people think and then you kind of rebuild yourself I love that I really do because I think you know if you totally hit rock bottom you think well that's it that's where I am and I think I can relate to that because I call it um my daisy pregnancy because I think like pregnancy from hell makes me sound really angry but <laughs> with my last pregnancy my daisy journey I mean it's the one that led to me write my first book and things like that mm. But because I had that semicolon moment because I wanted to commit suicide because it was all just too much. The fact she was like thought to be one of triplets and the other two died. They was told to terminate her and things like that. Oh. It, it was my rock bottom. And since my Daisy journey, I, I mean, people would say I didn't have a filter in the first place, Susie, but I think I had a gesture <laughs> of filter. Me too. Yeah, but, but I it like just fell out. A gesture. I had so a gesture. Yeah, so like I try filter. it. <laughs> but it just fell out. And I just thinking like, that pregnancy taught me more about myself, about life, about how other people treat me than anything that went before it. So I love the fact that I hit rock bottom, which I never thought I'd say. And I love the fact mm. that, you know, you spectacularly had a breakdown before you had your breakthrough. And I think yeah. I like to think that us, you know, rock bottom suicidal people, you know, yeah. Don't inspire I, others to hit rock bottom, but do inspire well, people to carry on. I think a lot on. of people are really, really scared of it. And um, I've done quite a lot of coaching courses, been on them, written about them as a journalist, also hosted them. And we do one of the exercises we do is the fear ladder where um, you name your biggest fear and then the other person that your partner with says, and then what? So you say something like, you know, um, I'm really terrified of doing a public talk because everybody might laugh at me. And the other person says, and then what? And you have to keep going down the ladder. 
And invariably, most people get to they're a bag lady on the street. It's amazing. You know, I'd say eight out of 10 people doing it get to bag lady on the street, having a breakdown, mental health problems, all this stuff. So we have this massive, massive fear. And actually, so many people I've interviewed now who've got there have said, like you and I, actually, there's something amazingly liberating about that. And so it's not to be scared of it because, first of all, it's amazing how you get out of it and how you rebuild yourself back. And I think better. <laughs> I mean, I would say that I think I've rebuilt myself much better. I think version two is so much better than version one. But I do think there's something really, really valuable in that process and the liberation that breaking down gives you to not care and to just ditch because actually when you're thinking of killing yourself whether it's like oh shall I get up today or shall I hang myself that's quite a stark question so everything else is filtered out and things like you know that I usually might worry about like money they don't even get on your radar because what is the point in money when you're having that question in your head and what's the point in a flaky friend who sometimes talks to you and sometimes doesn't I mean she is just not on your radar either so everything is sharpened into focus. And I think for me, what I am pleased that I've been able to do is make changes and then consciously hold on to a lot of them. I mean, it's a constant practice as it probably is with you, but constantly remembering what you've learned and, and living that and you know, reminding yourself of what's important. And that has been amazing. And your podcast is obviously all about positive changes. And as we talked about before I came on air, with you is um I would say the biggest positive change that came out of the situation I was in was my husband and I sat down and had the most frank conversations ever because as you say if you've gone right to the brink and you've managed to admit to somebody you love that you've been thinking about killing yourself that's kind of starts the conversation <laughs> in a different place to most conversations so you can pretty much go anywhere from there and what where we went to was right this life isn't working what kind of life would work? Imagine a life that would work. Imagine a life where you're happy. Really think, where do you want to be? And I think for me, that was the big, big question because I wasn't happy in the environment I was in. An environment plays such a huge role. The sort of physical environment, but also the people you're surrounded with, the culture, the narrative that predominant, predominates, all that kind of thing is so, so, so important. And so for me, I just remember saying in hospital to Phil, um, you know, we had this quite surreal conversation. He doesn't actually remember it now, but I do. Um, even though I was on loads of drugs at the time, um, prescription drugs, obviously. Um, <laughs> I was in this hospital ward and uh, he's like, okay, because it's obviously extremely upsetting for a loved one to hear you say you're thinking about killing yourself. Um, but when we did have this conversation, he was like, okay, I'm, I'm sick of this. I'm sick of telling you not to have these thoughts. So let's have these thoughts. Let's go there, right? It's the last week of your life. Where are you going to spend it? What are you going to be doing? You know, what would make you happy? And I just thought about it. I thought, oh, that's a good question. Um, I think for the last week of my life, I'd like to be in the Scottish Highlands, my favorite place. I'd like to have gone on a nice bike ride and then maybe go to that nice pub and have a nice beer in the sun outside the beer garden. That's what I'd like to do. And he was like, well, you know, you don't have to die for that to happen. We can't actually make that our life. And uh, we did. So that's the kind of happy end that then continues with 
you know, the peaks and troughs of normal life because there is no happily ever after. But yes, that, that's kind of the biggest positive change I think I can tell you about. I think that's brilliant. I really do. You took me back to um, an episode in season two of Positive Change and Self-Kick podcast when I worked with Claudia Gotzelman and she was actually an end-of-life doula, but then mm. she retrained and she was a midlife coach. But she kind of consolidated the two talents. So mm. when she was coaching people like women of my age, like I'm 47, yeah, when she was coaching them. So women like us, yeah. uh, she would sort of say to them, go to the end of your life, what you want to have achieved. And that's what she would then bring into coaching now. And it's very much like what you said, like, you know, when Phil said to you, it's the last week of your life, what do you want to do? And you're like, oh, I want to do this. I want to do that. But not I am only a that. Fan of it. Yeah. Yeah. But not only that, just the pure simplicity. And Phil goes, well, you don't have to wait to the last week of your life. We could just move. And I think <laughs> we've become so stuck. You know, like, you know, yes, you have to sort of like, you know, I don't know, rent out your house, sell your house, find another rental. But I always say to my kids when they're sort of sitting there, one slapping the other one, they go, oh, he's hit my head. It's like, you're not a tree. You're not rooted to the spot. You can move. And it is like yeah. that, you know, if you don't like the environment we you're get in. So rooted, we get so rooted. And the other thing I think that's great about uh, breakdowns is they break the autopilot. So a lot of us live these semi sleepwalking zombified lives, I think, where we're just going, you know, getting our getting on with life. Just and we're like, oh, this is all right. I'll keep going. I'll keep going. When you can't keep going, it's a great chance to reevaluate and actually recreate something that, that you really want to do for the better. And I think that's, yeah, that's exactly what we've done. And when we did move, I remember loads of people saying to me, what are you doing? It sounds crazy. Do they even have the internet up there in the Scottish <laughs> Highlands? Is there pubs? You know, everyone's like, what are you doing, you crazy lady? Um, and now, because I'm obviously still friends with a lot of people and we're on social media and they see that as a matter of course, my normal life, every single week, my normal life has wild swimming in a gorgeous loch or going mountain biking or even two weeks ago, ski touring in the Scottish Highlands because we got a late snow dumping. So I was out there <laughs> as if it was the Alps. That is my normal week. And so I think quite a few of them, I have got messages now going, hmm. I'm sorry I called you crazy I can see actually you're not that crazy <laughs> and I and my response is always just own your crazy because we're all a bit crazy and you know don't dismiss those crazy ideas because they might be the absolute key to what you absolutely want to do you're just too scared to admit it because it sounds so crazy I think it probably is more crazy to keep doing the same thing you're doing day in day out and expecting a different outcome I'm all for uprooting and going somewhere else I think you know the craziness is the people that think they want this amazing life and do nothing about it mm, but yeah it seems harder it seems harder than it actually is because like you said if you get bogged down in the what you actually have to do because if I'd been in hospital thinking about all the steps that I had to take in order to make this dream happen it would have been overwhelming because there is a lot of steps and we took ages to sell our house and we had kids in school and they had to leave their friends and if you think through the detail that might put you off but if you just start with the feeling and the vision and focus on that and luckily my husband is one of the most optimistic stroke delusional people that I, I've ever <laughs> met so he um just <laughs> obviously was dealing with a wife coming out of 
hospital who was really still <laughs> depressed and he's this eternal optimist and he just um you know kept it alive he kept this dream alive and didn't let my demons be all negative about it and um yeah I'm I'm really lucky that um I have that to to balance me out because I am naturally quite a pessimist and I have to work at it all the time to turn around my thinking and you know we talked as well before about journaling journaling is a massive part of that for me that I have to do often because I think you can only turn around what's in your mind if you actually know what's in your mind wishing about and um for me the best way for me to do that is sitting down with a pen and paper yeah and it's quite a simple thing to do but as you say like when it's going around in your head it does just go around in your head. It's only when you put it on paper and you look at it and you think, did I just write that? I know the crazy stuff that comes out. I interviewed somebody on my podcast the other day and she was saying that journaling is like uh, having a seance with your weird <laughs> self, which I love. And she was like, we should all get to know our weird self as much as we can and just let it all come out. Cause that's the bit, that's the bit of life. that's so interesting is that when we're open enough to have that seance with that weird part of ourselves. And she oh. was like, that's where the gold is. And she's a poet and a playwright and stuff. And that's where she gets the gold. So embrace your inner weirdo. If there's one message from this podcast. Oh my God. I so want a seance with myself. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a crystal ball. I'm halfway there. I know, but you're quite into death as well. You probably invite yeah. those people along. Yeah. It'd be quite quite a busy party. But, um, yeah, I'd be lonely, would I? No. <laughs> so if you don't mind me asking, you speak about mm. these demons that you had before the pregnancy. I know like the pregnancy mm. is quite demonic itself and the things like that. But what kind of things have you carried before the pregnancy, which were then triggered? Uh, well, the big one for me was perfectionism, which obviously was massively triggered by uh, motherhood so the big thing I carried was this idea that I had to be good all the time I had to be perfect so I was the archetypal girl at school who worked really hard to get really good grades because I had this idea that if you do that then you're inverted commas successful like when you're a kid and you're working really hard at school and you're trying to get all these A's and everything no one actually tells you the definition of success but they're just like this is way off thing this nirvana you'll be successful if you do this so you just follow it and you do it and then for me it was like getting sucked into a lot of automatic choices like going to university and all this stuff and so I think I hadn't I hadn't consciously thought about my decisions and I hadn't consciously connected with what I really wanted to do I felt a real pressure because I got good grades uh, to go and uh, to try and do things that weren't me you know I'm not a corporate person and um I tried to to be corporate and to be fair on me at least I didn't go into you know I was thinking about I was so didn't know what I wanted to do coming out of um university and there was all these milk round people I don't know if you know what the milk round is but when I came out of university the milk round was all these big firms come to your university and they go come and work for us and we'll give you loads of money and it's like accountancy firms and banks and law firms and you know I didn't have an interest at all but they were offering loads of money and giving you loads of free wine when you're at university and you're like oh <laughs> not be that bad actually and that that was the level of kind of insight into myself at that point that I had uh, and now I look back and think, God, I was so clearly just itching to just 
write a weird play and go and try and put it on or you know travel or go and do a ski season with a bit of like writing writing poetry on the side but that would not have been acceptable to myself back then because I carried this story about that's not a success so you asked about the baggage it was basically that it was kind of like trying to live to this narrative that I had to tick off things at certain times and when I then had a baby and my life went into disarray. I realized you can't, your life is not a tick box exercise. And kids will really hit that home because they won't allow you to tick any boxes. <laughs> you have to, you have to adapt when you have kids and they won't just do what they're told very much. At least mine don't. And so you have to be more adaptable and I had to be more flexible. So, it, it, you know, I've obviously had a lot of therapy and I've read loads of stuff around it. And I think I'm kind of, yeah, I think I'm a different person now. I'd like to go back and talk to her that was at university, although, you know, she had a good time. She met her husband. It's all worked out. Yeah. And there was wine at one point. So, and there was free wine. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't become an accountant. So, you know, <laughs> there's another positive. So, yeah. the perfectionism. So, I don't ever believe in perfectionism. I don't have, that because I always think well no one's perfect so a definition of perfectionism isn't perfect so where does perfectionism come from is it a self-led thing is it a parental thing is it a teacher where does I it don't come? think it's a conscious thing like obviously everybody says all the time it trips off your tongue nobody's perfect everybody makes mistakes so of course I heard that a million times but I didn't believe it because I thought I have to be the best you know I have to get the top of the class I have to you know I did loads of sports I have to be really good so everything was a pressure and it came from both external. You know, I went to a private school that put on a lot of pressure. I had parents who were both professionals that um, wanted the best for me and that translated into pressure. So I had a lot of pressure, but I put a lot of pressure on. I absorbed it all and then put it on. Um, and it wasn't the case of at all in an arrogant way thinking I have to be perfect. It was much deeper than that. It was much more like I have to be good. I have to be the best in order to prove to myself and the world that I am worthy. So that is the absolute root of so many mental health problems yeah. is this idea that you have to do something or be somebody in order to be worthy. And what I'm trying to bring my kids up with this feeling is this in inherent feeling of worthiness. So, you know, you are worthy just being you. You don't have to do anything for me. You don't have to be anything for me. You don't have to achieve anything for me. And I want it to come from them, what they want to do. I want them to follow their interests and follow their joy and all that. It does become quite difficult when you've got two boys that never want to do their homework <laughs> because that conflicts <laughs> a bit with my whole upbringing and working hard thing. But I just try and get this message across that you are worthy just being you on this planet. And if you want to sit sometimes on Netflix and just binge watch for hours, that's fine. It doesn't make you a worthless person. I mean, I would never let myself rest or relax when I was younger. Yeah. You know, the idea of having a nap in the afternoon would be like, oh my goodness, that's not productive. I'm not achieving anything. And now, you know, my son lies there quite happily in the weekends. <laughs> And part of me wants to go, you're so lazy, get off your mat. And then I'm like, ah, yeah, that's, that's version one. Upgrade, version two, Susie's like, oh, you must be really tired. And he's always like, yeah, I'm really tired. And rest is so important. <laughs> and I think they get more of those messages from school now. Anyway, I think mental health is much more 
on the radar of schools, luckily. So they don't get all that messaging about you have to achieve all the time, hopefully. Yeah, I hope, I hope there has been a shift in the last year. So you have two boys. Did the breakdown mm. come after the first or second pregnancy? The big breakdown was after the first one. So Toby is now 12. And so I was hospitalized when he was about uh, eight weeks, eight, 10 weeks. Can't remember exactly. Um, and so that was the big one. Obviously, <laughs> it was a big achievement for me to go and have another one. after yeah. that. But I really didn't want uh, Toby to be on his own. I wanted him to have a sibling. And so did my husband. So the second pregnancy was still horrendous. I, I do not um, respond well to hormonal change. And it was horrendous, but I got through it. And I kind of knew what it was going to be like the second time around, which was better. And I managed it a bit better and other people around me managed it better. But I would not say pregnancy is an experience that I enjoyed. No. And that's all right, because I think as you, we started the conversation, it was kind of like, you know, and you glow and it's a privilege and da da da. And I was thinking, I think because I had like miscarriage, pregnancy, miscarriage, pregnancy, five miscarriages. Oh. and things like that I never enjoyed pregnancy because if I wasn't vomiting I was just petrified it's going to go end. yeah and it, so I think like when I had my first miscarriage for the pregnancy come to full term take home babies what I used to call them. when I made my first take home baby I already knew about loss so I never enjoyed a pregnancy after that mm. um you know and you see the people incredibly they, difficult yeah you see people and they have their hands on the bump you know even when there's not a bump and they're really maternal and they have that whereas I was more like oh my God, it's a time bomb, baggy jumpers, husband's hoodies, because the, I don't know, the innocence of pregnancy was never there for me. And so mm. like, you, you're not good with the hormonal changes. I'm not good with the loss. And I think mm. it's really important that we sit here today and just go like, it's okay to not be okay in a pregnancy. It's okay. Absolutely. You, yeah. People used to say, oh, sit in the bath and drip water on your bump and the baby will move away. Oh my God. It was like aliens with Sigourney Weaver. And I was just like... <laughs> why would you do that and it freaked me out and people say oh look that's an elbow and I was like oh look it's my dinner contents coming up mm -hmm. I'm just you know once they're out I've got you I love you but that whole alien thing I was just never namaste cover me in daisy chains kind of mother do you know what I mean yeah yeah and we need more of those stories out there so other people feel like you know what it's fine it's fine and you know now Toby's 12 he's got a younger brother Torin who's nine and I am pleased to say that I am much better with them when they're a bit older and they can speak and walk around and do stuff and I love it I love it now yeah no that's wonderful I just want to go back to the fact you were taken into um, a mother and baby unit mm. so I have no idea what that'd be like so if anyone out there today and they really resonate with your story thinking actually I think mm. I'm about to break down maybe I could go mm. to mother and baby unit or suggest it to a friend mm. realistically speaking what is it like inside those units Oh, it's a really, for me, it was just like a massive sigh of relief. So it's just, it was just a wing and a hospital. So it feels hospitally, although what was really nice about it is you each got your own room with an ensuite. So it felt like quite for, uh, for I was going to say for a hotel, <laughs> not for a hotel, for a hospital, it felt quite um, luxurious, I suppose, you know, you had your own space. And then there was a communal area where you could all come together and that was really important because you got to meet other mums that were really struggling as well and you got a different perspective on motherhood and then 
all the nurses, many of them had experienced severe postnatal depression. Um, so they were there because they felt strongly about it and they were very nurturing. So it was a really nurturing environment. And the big emphasis was on rest um, because as with uh, so many people in this situation, exhaustion is a massive part of it. You've had a baby and you haven't slept. And when you haven't slept, that just exacerbates everything. So you literally have um, people that will take your baby at night. And in my case, insomnia was the real problem. So I got given a sleeping pill at night and I was just knocked out. Somebody took my baby and fed him all night. And in the morning, what they work really hard at, because I think what's difficult if you've got mental health problems at home on your own with a baby, the bonding can become a real issue. And that's what was starting to happen with me on my own. So um, my husband would go off to work. I'd be left on my own with a baby. I'd be freaked out with all these thoughts I was having. And there was absolutely no bonding going on because it's impossible in that situation. It's really difficult. Whereas in the hospital, they're all so aware and medically trained and they understand the importance of bonding with your baby. So they, everything is about trying to reestablish that bond and trying to help it which is great because you have nothing else to do, like no housework, you don't have to go to baby groups and pretend you're okay. You can just totally be yourself. They have people come in and, you know, it helped us with relaxation and massage and baby massage. So the whole focus is on that bond. The only thing that was really difficult for me is that I was actually hospitalized just outside Edinburgh where I grew up, but my husband was down south. So um, I hardly saw him and he hardly saw Toby which was really heartbreaking that was the hardest part of it but I think overall there wasn't really much else we could do because um I just wasn't coping I had to be somewhere with support um so I'd say if anybody else out there is feeling like that uh the support for me was just what I needed at the time I needed that much support I knew I couldn't cope and I felt a huge amount of shame at the beginning I think I told two friends and this was kind of 12 years ago. So things have moved on a bit, but there was still a huge amount of stigma 12 years ago. So I was so ashamed of it. that I'd been hospitalized and I told two friends and my family knew and that was it. And it took, there was another process of me getting better and recovering and coming to terms with that, what happened to me and then being able to talk about it. And I think that's actually, the, the time when I properly recovered was when I was able to kind of, sounds a bit Beyonce, but own that part of my story, be able to kind of accept it and integrate it into my story without being embarrassed. So now here I am talking to you on a podcast that goes out to people that I've never met and I can say, yes, this happened and I'm okay with it because tw uh, 12 years ago, I wasn't okay with it. And I've been through like a real, I hate this expression, but journey of you know, working through it. And now I see it as such a valuable part of my life that taught me a huge amount. And I don't see myself as a failure for ending up there anymore, which I did for years. I now see it as, as we've talked about already, giving me so much learning and so much insight into myself and other people. And, you know, I talk to the boys about it. They know. They know about it. I speak to Toby's 12 now. And um, I just think it's really important that people feel that they can talk about this kind of stuff because I didn't. And it made it worse for me that I didn't because I literally waited until I couldn't cope. 
Um, whereas maybe if I'd had the courage to talk earlier then and get help earlier, then it would have been not as drastic. Yeah, but I don't know if you end up where you are today. I think sometimes we do need, as we said earlier, like that rock bottom, you know, then mm. it's a bit cliche, but the only way is up. I want to sing that song from the 80s. I know, but... I do that in my podcast. <laughs> I keep on having 80s songs come to me when I podcast and I can't help singing them. Yeah. Maybe you should uh, <laughs> sing it at the end. Let's not. Let's keep those numbers growing. Um, <laughs> it was interesting what you said about the nurturing and the bonding and things like that. Way back in season two, there was a lovely lady on called Vanessa Young, if I remember correctly, who is like um, a doula, a birth doula, but she's all about mm. is it the Ayurvedic way of life. And mm. apparently when they have a baby, the mum doesn't do anything but bond for six weeks. It's a real communal thing where people bring like you know, these lovely massages and these oils and the food comes to you and you are nurtured. You just have to bond. You've been through a lot. And I only realized the importance of that because my third child was born by emergency C-section. And so then I couldn't do anything for six weeks. So then like my husband had to work from home before it became normal way back then it wasn't normal. So he had to work from home and there was lots of meals. You could treat yourself to the nice things, you know, as long as you were eating little and often, and it was all about falling mm. asleep in the bare skin. And I think that's what she was saying. I mean, this is like over a year ago now, that was how it used to be you know, you've been through something, you've, you know, literally, I don't want to be too crass, but it is like you've literally squashed something out of your body parts, haven't you? <laughs> you need to heal and recover, let's be realistic. And she was saying like, you know, in some beliefs and some communities, that's still the norm that you don't do anything for six weeks apart from bond. But absolutely, it makes total, total sense to me. I, I, what doesn't make sense, what is crazy is the way we do it. The way we have these life-changing beings come in in quite a dramatic shall we say way our bodies feel the effects and then we're almost expected especially with this really unhelpful celebrity culture where they pop back in and they're like on instagram two minutes later going oh look at me i've just got a dumbbell in my hand you know all that stuff is just completely unhelpful because at the end of the day it's a huge thing physically mentally but not just for the mum, it's for the dad as well. And I feel like two weeks for the dad to be at home yeah. and then have to go back to work. It's just ridiculous. You know, there's that saying, it takes a village. Well, let's make it more of a village. Instead, what's happening to society is we're becoming much more isolated from each other. And in a way, pandemic has been good for those neighborhood relations. And wouldn't, be, wouldn't it be amazing if we could build on that, particularly with new mums, and support them more because I just feel like new mums are just not supported enough and it would be amazing if you could just have that time where you could relax and bed in and focus on what's important because having a tidy house and entertaining people and doing fitness videos and all that shouldn't be on your radar but it is for so many of us so I think absolutely we should be I don't know how we rethink society on that. I don't think we've got enough time on this podcast to, to cover that. <laughs> no, but it's true because it's just so much judgment. And I'm all for that kind of like rise, sister, rise kind of thing. And like when I had Daisy, I was 40. And people like my local hospital, it's like, well, you are an old mother, just terminate. And I was just like, yeah, but it's because you think I'm old, quotation marks, is the reason why we will not terminate that and the fact that I'm really crap at having a pregnancy full term anyway you know I'm going to cling to this because I'm not going to be pregnant after this do you know what I mean I'm 40 but then people mm. get judged the other end going oh she's too young she's not lived what does she know about life 
you know, and we're always judging and it's like, stop judging and start helping. Do you know what I mean? We've all got our stories. We're all a little bit broken, I think. Absolutely. But I think it is also, it's a natural human thing to judge. And I get really cross with myself because I notice myself doing it and I notice other people doing it to me and it really aggravates me. But I think, first of all, we just have to say, okay, our first gut reaction might be a judgment. So somebody might um, look at me and go, oh, you're an old mom or whatever. And then just be able to notice that you've done that is the key thing. And then to go question yourself, to challenge yourself. Um, and then consciously try and hear other people's stories and, and look at other people's perspectives. Because I think that's the only way that the judgment is going to become less of a damaging thing because we we do live in a society where we judge at you know it's a glance a glance on social media and you've made a judgment you haven't even met that person but you've made a judgment yeah I remember it was after the daisy journey um, that filter had gone and the feistiness was coming out and I tried to be this sort of like just so looking kind of like spiritual teacher and author you know, the, I don't want to say it, but you know, like the Hay House kind of ones where they're kind of like, they're blonde and they're clean, you know, and things like that. And I was just like, after the Daisy Journey, I was just like, that's not really me. And my hair used to be like, you know, bright red and uh, quite long. And I don't swear, but I don't have a filter either. So I will like speak my mind. And it just came out. I was just sort of like, you don't know my story. I mean, I never spoke about my infertility. My first book, Positive Changes, um, a self-kick book. I wrote it because I just tried everything. The medical people said, Terminator, she's never going to make it. But I had a vision of a girl to come and I just clung. So I thought, you know, I was nursing a clinical hypnotherapist. I was all very clinical, but the clinical side and world that I'd grown up in was then going like, Terminate. And I was like, Do you know what? You no longer serve me. So I went totally down the spiritual route. And I did come out and I was just like, this is who I am. You don't know my story. I'm really crap at pregnancy. Mm. I'm like really infertile. I believe in the spiritual side, not the clinical side. And it is, isn't it? I think you said earlier about awareness, like when we get aware of those thoughts and that where that judgment. And I think when we become aware of things, that's where you can start creating the changes when you know yeah, what's going and on. And that's why somebody said to me the other day, um, a big thing for me is storytelling and color stories. And I always try and get different people on my podcast and sometimes people say oh I don't have anything to say and I'll have to explain to them why I find their story interesting because I think there is something about the importance of telling different stories and actually there's something it's a generous act to tell your story truthfully because it will help somebody else and it's actually an ungenerous act to not reveal anything because if you're with somebody and I I don't know, you don't seem like this at all. We seem like the kind of people that would probably go to a drinks party and just like be oversharing massively <laughs> and enjoying it. But, you know, obviously some people don't enjoy that. However, I think that kind of person who doesn't reveal anything, that's a really ungenerous act because how is someone not going to understand you better unless you share something of your story, unless you show some vulnerability, unless you try and show part of you that's, it's real because you can't connect with that otherwise and that's when judgment steps in so if you're not saying anything and you're not revealing anything and you're not letting anybody in then you're going to be judged more because people will be like well that person's a blah 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 or this 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 and you make assumptions because there's nowhere else to go with it unless you're really enlightened and buddha like you've got a buddha sitting there behind you on your <laughs> shelf unless you're so then that you cannot you can just be very empathetic and think 
oh, well, that person must have a lot going on and that person doesn't want to speak to me. And you must, you know, if you're very highly evolved, then maybe you can do that. I'm not. So I just be like, oh, well, that person's really grumpy and they're not revealing anything about themselves kind of thing. So telling stories is just such an important part of building our understanding. I think it's part of human nature and like through all the cultures over all times we are storytellers like I Mm. was raised a lot by my grandparents and they told stories and even in like Native American tribes they told stories and you know I Mm. think we're losing that but I'm thinking you know like with podcasts and things like that hopefully it's coming back and they yeah we're doing such an important job aren't we Shelley we are love yeah we are like the modern day Native Americans (laughs) but it's true I think that if you're not sharing your story one why you're hiding it but I think if you're not creating the story then the rest of us maybe we're just <laughs> naughty people but if you're not sharing your story then people are writing the story for you mm, you're not controlling it and I think that's what happened with me with hospital for so long I was so ashamed of it didn't mention it there was almost like this this skeleton that I was so worried it's going to jump out at any point and embarrass me and once I'd made peace with it and owned it, I didn't have to worry about that. I didn't have that extra exhaustion of, oh, if people are going to find out, are they going to judge me? I was just like really straight up, just, yeah, this happens. It was a bit, <laughs> it got better. I'm fine, you know? And you then are in control of your story. You don't have somebody going, well, sh- I've heard she's a bit bonkers. Yeah. I've heard she, she went to the loony bit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think I feel better for doing it. I don't think I would have spoke openly about my infertility when I was still, you don't like this word, but on that journey. Um, (laughs) I don't think I would have said it then because I hadn't completed my family. I hadn't completed my journey just to really wind you up. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I say it too, but then I hear it back on edits and I'm like, oh, I'm using that too much. Journey, journey. It was so up and down. (laughs) But I couldn't have done it at the time. And I think, again, come back to awareness. My husband's a contractor not like a killer contractor who goes around doing web design and oh, what um, a shame. Oh, disclaimer <laughs> midsummer murders in scotland um yes. yeah but he was like you know you sort of do like get to know you kind of meet and greet thing and they're saying oh like a dad of four kind of thing and they're going god you've got a lot of children he went yeah but you've had 11 pregnancies it's a throwaway comment and you think well he wouldn't have done that like you know seven years ago but mm. As you say, when you sort of like integrate those broken parts of you, integrate your story, brace the dark and things like that, it softens. I, I call, um, it's part of my coaching program, one of the modules that's a chapter for my first book. It's called From Mess to Message. And it is that, like I was an absolute mess. I was rock bottom. I didn't want to go on with life. My husband's ridiculously gorgeous if anyone's ever seen him. <laughs> the other three kids were really, really cute. But it wasn't enough in that moment, you know, but by sharing the fact that, you know, the fact I've got four children, but I'm a bit crap at pregnancy and bring them to fruition, I think is valuable. It's probably nicer ways to say it. And I'm quite crass with it. But it's got to help someone because I've had that judgment. I shared on, um, I think it was episode one, no, episode two of this season, season three, about the judgment I get that people say like, well, you wouldn't understand about infertility because you've got four children. And it's that if I don't tell my story, you're going to tell my story. And it's like, it's my story. I'll share it. But we do get it. And, you know, maybe I'm jovial and lighthearted about my loss, but it's my story. I can tell it how I like kind of thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it makes you just a more interesting person for it, I think. Yeah. And as you say, I talk openly about death. Maybe that's another thing. I speak openly about death. I set up a death cafe. My next book's called Good Grief. You know, um, 
I don't want to say I love death, but I'm comfortable around it. Mm. And so it's that like death- it's like the you know tribal uh, a village raises a child. Also, other cultures are just much better at doing death than we are. Yeah, absolutely. Bless you. So you shared about like journaling and things like that. Mm. So today. I like to think that our pregnancy from hell stories are going to help people. Um, <laughs> so today, <laughs> yes, you see a big drop in pregnancies in the next few few months now. <laughs> but for people out there today, and maybe they're suffering the postnatal depression, or mm. they're feeling really anxious in their pregnancy, or they mm. have mental health predisposing factors, and thinking mm. about becoming pregnant, things like that. Mm. What would you say they can do around that? Like what one positive change could they do around their mental health and that whole motherhood thing? Well, for me, the most valuable thing I've already mentioned is journaling, sort of knowing what's on your mind and working it through. I find writing is my way of processing my emotions, finding out what I think, because quite often our fears and anxieties are jumbled up in our head and we can't really um, get to the root of what's going on if we're just wandering around, not dealing with them. So I find sitting down even for five minutes and just trying to order that. And I find that I'll just sit down with a pen. I mean, writing is my go-to thing anyway, I'm a writer, but even if you're not writing is hugely valuable, don't worry about what your writing looks like or your spelling or your grammar or anything like that. Just write, let it just come out, come out, come out. The more you do it, the more you'll get close to your weird self, the more you'll be able to work out what is going on in your head and the more you'll be able to address it and you might find actually that a lot of your anxieties are uh, a bit irrational and you might also find that once you see them on paper you can start dealing with them and start solution finding whereas if they're just in your head and you're too scared to look at them they just get worse and that's I think what happened to me so that would be my biggest thing is if you're nervous um, about anything, not just pregnancy, is a really useful tool for, for clarity of thought. Yeah, and I love that because when you keep telling yourself the same thing, that's dangerous in itself because a belief is just something you tell yourself again and again and again. So it is important to get it out because otherwise if you're telling yourself it, it's going to be deeper work to do in the future. Yeah, and when you see it on paper, you might recognise it and go, oh, that's a random thought. And you may realise that, it's just the thought and it's not actually what you think. Yeah. It's just being able to see it in black and white that's really helpful. I remember a few years ago, I went through a stage of doing the morning pages by the Julia Cameron. Oh yeah, they're great when yeah, you Yeah, so you, you wake up and brain dump and you just like scroll for like 20 minutes because you write and write and write and you don't, as you said, don't do the grammar, don't write the handwriting, don't care what you're saying, don't share it. But it was really powerful in the fact when I read it back, I was going, I think that, what I think is and it was think was just there all the time which I wasn't aware of because I was so busy thinking but <laughs> when it was on the page I was like I'm thinking a lot but I'm not doing do you know what yes. I mean? kind of overthinking yeah. under action kind of thing and so yeah and journaling helps with that and what that exercise I love the morning pages when I can do them uh, my podcast is all about creativity and creativity is all about thinking differently for me so it's not just uh, painting poetry whatever it's your whole approach it's your curiosity openness attitude to life that's creative thinking to me and when I do the morning pages religiously I just find there's ideas the page suddenly jumps with ideas everywhere so like you were saying you're thinking a lot I found I had the word think a lot but I also had 
actions as well. I had ideas. So I used, to, I used to do them and then take a highlighter and go and highlight the action points because otherwise you can just lose them because my writing's so messy and I can never, if I go back a couple of days later, I don't have a clue what it says. <laughs> but um, there are lots of um, ways that you can use writing to help you get to the action points. That's brilliant. Thank you. And speaking of brilliant, you have a freebie for the listeners today. So tell us about that. Oh, yes. So um, I have just created this. So it will go on my website quite soon. Um, if listeners want to sign up to my newsletter, you can go to bigjuicycreative.co.uk. And I'm going to be sending out subscribers soon a poster. And what it is, is there is a famous uh, rules for life called desiderata that some listeners may have heard of it starts off go placidly amid the haste and it's all about rules for living and it was written in the 1850s or something and I've rewritten it for covid times I've called it covidirata and the whole point <laughs> is I want to put a poster on my wall that reminds me of everything I've learned from this pandemic and so it's kind of um, learnings from the pandemic written up in a hopefully poetic way so yes and um obviously i send out newsletter um updates about anything to do with creativity which is my thing bless you susie bashford my face is aching from laughing so much i'm not sure we should be <laughs> laughing at each other's traumas but i feel like i've been in the therapy best way it's the best way <laughs> i've got jewelry i'm thinking oh, i'm laughing about miscarriages you know, and the fact I nearly lost the plot and never vomited so much in my life. But thank you for making me air that. Thank you. <laughs> oh, well, thank you for your time. It's been lovely chatting. If you enjoyed today's episode, please make sure you subscribe and leave a positive review. If you would like to create your own positive changes, you can buy Positive Changes, a self-kickbook from all online book retailers or from ShellyFKnight.com. If you need a dollop of positivity until the next episode, come like and follow us over on Facebook at Shelley F. Knight. Life Goes On. As always, I've been Shelley F. Knight and you've been amazing.